Let me say, firstly, it's great to be here. Um, I've followed the progress of Mary Creek closely, uh, and uh, it's terrific to see it sort of developing and growing, so it's great to be here. Thank you for the invitation, Peter. Shall we pray? Lord, we ask that your Holy Spirit would open our hearts and our minds to your word. Speak to us that we may hear your voice clearly and so seek to obey you. In Jesus' name, Amen. <clears throat> now these days um, I have hearing aids and all sorts of other bits and pieces that are replaced. It's um, what happens to you as you kind of become an ancient ruin. So um, if my voice is dropping a bit, just stick your hand up at the back and I'll try and project a bit more, okay? In times of great anxiety and stress in the world, sometimes Christians become apocalyptic, start talking about the second coming. Books and articles appear about the imminence of Christ's return and the judgment of the nations. For example, during the First World War, um, there were lots of uh, books and so on came out and uh, uh, because of the kind of chaos and slaughter that was taking place on the Western Front, uh, people began to think about it as Armageddon, as the final war. And of course they called it the Great War. Some of you who've read Tolkien's Lord of the Rings or seen the films, and you, you remember those battle scenes with enormous hordes of people and the, the chaos and the carnage. Well, that was inspired by Tolkien's experience on the battlefields of World War I. And when you remember that in one battle alone, the Battle of Passchendaele in 1917, there were, the Allied casualties were a quarter of a million men. Now that was just the Allied casualties, let alone the enemy. And so it was understandable that they began to think about this as the end, the great battle. In 1945, when World War II ended with the dropping of the two atomic bombs, one on Nagasaki and one on Hiroshima, and the devastation that that caused, and incidentally this is the 70th anniversary year of that event, it set off similar sentiments among people. Uh, and that continued right through the 1950s. Now in the 1950s I was a teenager. Now I know it's a bit hard to think of the fact that I might have been a teenager once, but I was once. And in the 1950s, we had the development of the Cold War after World War II. This was the kind of standoff between the US and Russia. And as each side built up its atomic weapons, pointed at each other, there was a kind of an anxiety growing. And we all lived in the shadow of a potential nuclear holocaust. And I remember very vividly a film that was made, it was actually made here in Melbourne, uh, called On the Beach. And it starred Gregory Peck and Ava Gardner. Now probably you've heard of Gregory Peck, but Ava Gardner was this beautiful film star who most of us were in love with if we were 15. And um, that film was actually made here in Melbourne. But the plot of the film was this. There'd been a nuclear 
holocaust in the northern hemisphere and everybody was wiped out. And there was this great radioactive cloud that was gradually moving south. And the last inhabited place where human beings were alive was Australia. And this cloud was gradually moving down. And uh, people in Melbourne were waiting for it to happen. And uh, as the plot of the film goes, they, the, the government, the Australian government, gave out suicide pills to everybody so that when they began to suffer radiation sickness, they could take the pills and end it all. And the film ends with this scene in a Melbourne street, completely empty, wind blowing paper down it, and there is a sign flapping in the breeze that says, there is still time. Now I guess that was a message to say to everybody who was fearing nuclear war, there's still time to do something about this and to stop it. When the modern state of Israel was constructed after World War II to look after all the Jewish refugees from Europe, there was once again a rash of prophetic interpretation in some Christian quarters. Were we now seeing the Bible's predicted restoration of Israel and the final preparations for the second coming of Christ? And of course now again today, with the rise of Islamic terrorism and the crisis in the Middle East, some are seeing the biblical predictions in the book of Zechariah as a gathering of the nations for the final conflict. Once again, Armageddon. Now, if you add to all of that, the environmental crisis that we're experiencing, the largest displacement of people in human history, 59 million, the UN estimates, are now displaced persons, either refugees, asylum seekers, or whatever. 59 million. And they anticipate it will get bigger. And so there is growing once again a sense of an apocalyptic time. And I received a newsletter from a Christian organisation recently which was looking at the passage in Zechariah and predicting once again that the gathering of the nations would take place in the Middle East and the Great War would begin. But scripture is clear about two things in this particular matter. Firstly, that Christ will return to consummate the kingdom of God. But secondly, we do not know when that will take place. As we just read in this passage from Thessalonians, brothers and sisters, about times and dates, we do not need to write to you. For you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night and thieves don't tell you when they're coming. Jesus makes the same point very clear to his disciples in Acts chapter 1, verses 6 to 8. The disciples gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? That was a kingdom of God question. He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. It's not for you to know. Then he went on to say, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, Samaria 
and to the ends of the earth. You don't know the time, but get on with the job of proclaiming the gospel. So our challenge in relation to Christ and his return is twofold. Firstly, not to become complacent as we wait. That's the first challenge. And the second challenge is to keep a healthy tension between being expectant but not apocalyptic, being in a mood of anticipation but not catastrophizing at every tension that arises geopolitically. If you like, alert but not alarmed. Now the New Testament has many exhortations to us like these here in this passage about being alert and expectant. But practically, what does that mean? What does it mean for how we should now live out our lives each day? How should this affect how we approach our daily work, our attitude to money and security, the way we prepare our children and shape their faith, our attitude to material things like our homes and our cars and our possessions. Well, firstly, let me take a few minutes to remind you of some Kingdom of God theology, because this is very important to the way we think about this whole issue. And in your booklets today, you've got a diagram, which um, you've got a smaller version. It looks like that. You might like to take that out and keep that in front of you as I, I, I speak now about some ideas relating to the New Testament view of the Kingdom of God. When Jesus began his public ministry, he does so with this announcement. He says, the time has come. The Kingdom of God is near. Turn back to God and believe the good news. In other words, he's saying to them, God's promised rule, which is what the kingdom of God is, God's promised rule is breaking in now as I speak to you. And in Luke 4, when he went to his home synagogue in Nazareth, he quotes Isaiah 61, the passage that every good Jew knew was about the promise of the coming messianic king who would usher in the kingdom of God. And he reads, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. And so on. And then, as he puts the scroll down, he says these words to them, to their astonishment. Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, when I read the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, it's upon me. I'm the Messianic King. Now later in that passage, they sought to take him out to the cliff at Nazareth and throw him over it because they believed he was committing blasphemy. But the scripture says he passed through them. His time was not yet ready. Astonishing statement. Think about all the parables of Jesus. They are described as parables of the kingdom. 
Jesus always begins his parables with the kingdom of God is alike and then he tells a story. They are parables of the kingdom. As he heals the sick and confronts evil spirits, he says, if I by the finger of God cast out demons, know that the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or in other words, the power of God is now encountering the powers of this world. So Jesus in his life, death and resurrection is ushering in the beginning of the kingdom of God. God's saving, renewing and recreating rule of the world. The world that is presently broken and alienated from him. Alienated by our disobedience and rejection of God. If you think about his miracles... The miracles are not violations of the natural order, but they are samples, examples, if you like, of the restoration of the brokenness of the natural order. God did not create a world of blindness and disease. The miracles are a sign of God's renewing and healing of the creation that it has begun with the coming of Jesus. And one day will be completed when Christ returns. And there's that fantastic passage in Romans 8 where Paul says this, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. There's the big picture. There's the big hope. The creation itself will be renewed. But, here's the big but. Until then, and this is the crucial bit that kind of relates to all our questions about how we should live now as we anticipate the kingdom. Until then, we are in a tension between the two kingdoms, the two worlds. And if you look at your diagram there, I've tried to express that. The line at the top represents the kingdom of God breaking in. The broken line represents the kingdom of God breaking in to this world. The bottom line represents human history, this age, and the kingdoms of this age. So till Jesus returns to fulfil the kingdom of God, the kingdoms of this world remain. Now, what are the kingdoms of this world? Well, they are human institutions of government, of commerce, great corporations, the arts, popular entertainment, communications, education, we could go on. These are, these institutions are the kingdoms of this world. They are the powers of this world. And they all bear the marks of fallen humanity. All imperfect. Some, as we know sadly, 
manifestly corrupt and evil and exploitive. Most a mix of good and bad, all tainted with the human will to power and pride and greed. And so, there is frequently a conflict between the values of the kingdom of God and those of the kingdoms of this world. And that conflict takes place in us, in our lives. Now, at certain points in human history, the the values of the kingdom of God have seeped into the kingdoms of this world and influenced them for good. And you've got to remember that Western culture is the product of 2,000 years of Christianity. And so it's had a profound influence on many things, although that influence is now waning. And the conflict is often mixed, as I said, therefore with good, with the good. Because while we are fallen, we are therefore still capable of true knowledge. We can create and discover things that are good and apply them uh, to the kingdoms of this world. Scientific breakthroughs, modern medicine, human rights, democratic processes, justice systems, and so on. And we can apply those to the kingdoms of this world. But they are always vulnerable to our fallen self, to those three things of power, pride, and greed. And so we live in this tension. We are citizens both of Australia and citizens of the kingdom of God. And sometimes those, the claims of those two kingdoms conflict and they conflict in us, in the places where we work, in the institutions that we attend or serve, in the entertainment of the arts that we participate in. They're all a mixture. So if you want a title with which to remember this critical teaching today, you can call it Living in the Overlap. We are living in the overlap of the two kingdoms. So don't be surprised if you find tensions and value clashes in your daily life. That's normal for Christians living in the overlap. Get used to it. Indeed, if you don't find many tensions, you've probably sold out to your culture. And we're always all in danger of doing that. Now, if we go back to 1 Thessalonians 5 in our passage and look at the New Testament's advice to us about how to live in this tension, we're given a number of clues here in this passage. The first clue is found in verses 4 and 5. It's in the metaphor of light and darkness. Now, brothers and sisters, um, he begins the chapter, you don't know when it's coming, but verse 4, brothers and sisters, you are not in darkness so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all children of the light, and children of the day, we do not belong to the night or to the darkness. The metaphor of light and darkness. 
The light represents the kingdom of God, the new age that's breaking in. The darkness is the old age, the values and principles of the kingdoms of this world where they are turned away from God. Now remember our key idea, we're living in the overlap. Now the day and the night overlap at dawn and at dusk, don't they? At dawn and at dusk. Both are periods where it's not full of light. In the evening we enter twilight as the light fades. Dusk, we call it. In the morning at dawn the light is approaching but it's still mixed with shadows. Things are not yet fully clear to our vision till the sun fully rises. So what does this metaphor mean? Well, living in the overlap means that things are not always crystal clear. Sometimes they're ambiguous. Ethical questions are sometimes complex. For example, like many medical issues, as our knowledge expands of the story of our DNA and the human genome, and whether or whether we shouldn't, in the case of things like genetic dispositions to certain diseases and so on, where, how, how much we should interfere or use the processes and the new knowledge that we have, IVF techniques, etc., etc. None of that's crystal clear. You have to think hard about that. If there is a terrible disease we can eliminate, should we? We've done it in the past, in other ways, with uh, inoculation campaigns and so on. So how do we proceed in the dusk, in the twilight, before it's fully day, when the sun's just beginning to come up. How do we operate as Christians in these situations of ambiguity? Well, by the knowledge of the light and the day. The knowledge of the light and the day. In other words, the values of the kingdom of God. We try to apply those to guide us in the twilight. Let me give some examples of kingdom values. There are many of them and I can't speak about them all. For example, all human life is precious because it is made in the image of God. Furthermore, human life is precious because in his incarnation, Jesus took on human flesh and he ennobled human life. It's of infinite value. And so it must not be sacrificed for our convenience. We are on the brave new frontier of eugenics again. The so-called improvement of the human race. We've been down that track before with some disastrous consequences. Will we learn from that? We must always act honestly and not deceptively. The end never justifies the means for a Christian. Forgiveness above revenge. 
grace above rejection, love above self-interest, hospitality above exclusiveness, generosity above meanness, and so on. These are the principles we have to apply in the situations of ambiguity. Live by the light, the light of Jesus. Jesus said, let your light so shine before people that they will see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Friends, we're different. Get used to it. We are the children of the light. Or as Hebrews 6.5 puts it, we have tasted the powers of the coming age. And once you've tasted the powers of the coming age, you can never be the same again. Our second clue is in verses 6 to 8. So then, let's not be like others who are asleep. Let us be alert, awake, and sober or self-controlled. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be self-controlled or sober. Be alert and self-controlled. And it's mentioned twice for emphasis. So as Christians living in the overlap, we need to be on our toes and to practice self-discipline. We're not to slob around in our mental and spiritual pyjamas all day. Put on our street clothes. Get ready for the challenges of living in the daylight. That's what he's calling us to here. So, questions arise. How are your personal disciplines of daily prayer and regular study of God's word? How do you keep the values of the kingdom at the forefront of your mind? You have to keep remembering them, repeating them. Here am I now in my ancient days. And I suppose, you know, I've heard practically every chapter of the Bible preached about, and many of them preached about many, many times, and sometimes too often. Um, but, so why do I keep going to church and listening to the scriptures being expounded? Because I need to be reminded. I forget sometimes conveniently. We have to keep reminding ourselves of what the values of the kingdom are, to keep them in the forefront of our mind so we're living in the daylight, not in the dark or the twilight. Another question, how easily are you seduced by the norms of your culture about money and material possessions, about status and self-focused ambition? Oh, it's so easy to be sucked in to the values of our culture. For example, how are you training your children if you have them or if you're planning to have them? Are you training them to be disciples first and successful lawyers and accountants second? Or have you got that the other way around? Remember, the kingdom's consummation is coming. And those values won't be very important at all. 
The third clue is found in verse 8. Since we belong to the day, let us be sober or self-controlled and putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. Now, if you're familiar at all with the New Testament, you'll recognise that those are images that Paul uses frequently in his letters. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 13, the famous chapter about love, faith, hope and love, but the greatest of these is love. Ephesians 6, the passage where he talks about the spiritual armour that the Christian must put on. So he uses these images frequently. What he's saying here is that the key protective spiritual armour for living in the overlap and the battle between the two kingdoms can be summed up in three words. Faith, hope and love. Now in verses 9 to 10 he tells us what they are to be focused on. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. And there, here he's using awake and asleep as alive or dead. Christians thought about sl- death as sleep, waiting for the resurrection. So whether uh, we live or die, we may live together with him. In other words, we are to have faith and hope in Christ for our ultimate salvation. We will not suffer the wrath or the judgment that is to come at Christ's return because Christ has borne it for us in our place. And the great truth is that having united our life to Christ, whether we live or physically die, we are with him. The answer to the question, what is the Christian status after physical death, is in one word. Relationship. We belong to Christ. We are in relationship with him now. And that relationship continues beyond physical death. Nothing and shake that. So we have to focus our faith and our hope firstly on that. And this hope that we have, which is also about the the consummation of the kingdom and the renewal of the creation in its pains and its agony as it now is, that also should inform our attitudes to the challenges and the crises in our world that can at times depress and overwhelm us. I was um, speaking with a group of young adults, university students recently, who I have some regular contact with, and I was asking them some questions about particular political situations in the world, and they weren't very well informed, to my distress. Uh, And um, I kind of pressed them and they said, well, yeah, we are vaguely aware of all that, but it's too difficult. We can't do anything about it, so we switch it off. Now, that's understandable. You know, we've got huge problems in our world, and they are incredibly distressing. What do we do about 59 million 
displaced persons. So they are huge problems and it's very easy in the context that we are in to lose hope, to curse the darkness rather than to light a candle in the dark. But that's what Christians are called to do. We're the ones who are called to light the candles of hope in the darkness. And one of the things I have to fight against now at my my great age now is that because it's very easy to focus on the things that you, you become anxious about in the world as you get older. And you have to fight against that. It's hard. So we must be the ones who light the candle of hope rather than just curse the darkness. And of course, even before Christ returns, there's always the opportunity to bring some light into some of the darkness, to alleviate some of the suffering, some of the pain. And all over the world at this particular moment, there are Christians working in refugee camps doing exactly that. Now, if they stop for a moment to think about how overwhelming the problem is and is my little bit helping, they would give up. But if they help only one person, they've done something powerful. So we ought to continue to live as children of the light. Put on faith and hope and love as the breastplate. And the breastplate, of course, was a piece of armour that covered the, body, the main part of the body, the vital organs. In 1 Corinthians 13, as I referred to before, Paul says the greatest of these three things, faith, hope and love, is love. Why does he say that? Why is love greater than hope or faith? Well, I think there are three reasons for that. Firstly, because love fulfills the great command of Jesus to us. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your mind, strength, and your neighbour as yourself. And I don't know if you've ever thought about that last bit. And love your neighbour as you love yourself. The funny thing about that statement is that probably the clearest thing in it to all of us should be the last bit. Every one of us is incredibly self-obsessed. We think about ourselves all the time, how we look, how we feel, how's our health, how do other people think about us, how do I look today, have I just put my outfit on, do other people think I'll look good? We are incredibly self-obsessed, amazingly self-obsessed as human beings. Jesus says we are to start loving others with the same obsession that we love ourselves. Ever thought about that? Wow. That's a challenge. Love God and love others. And I don't think we can love others with that kind of obsessed passion unless we love God first. Secondly, I think love is the greatest of the three because love places our faith and our belief firmly in the relational and the experiential realm. Love is a passion. Now, it's not in a realm that's beyond or above reason, 
but it gives reason its kind of existential and experiential validation. God is love, we're told in the New Testament. And he has made us to love and be loved. It's part of our kind of essential human spiritual DNA. Someone has written, without rationality, we can't have belief, only feelings. But in living Christian faith, the rational and the emotional interpenetrate each other like the warp and woof of a fabric. You cannot separate them without destroying the garment that they create, the garment of faith. I guess a terrific explanation of the interaction of reason and emotion. So love is incredibly important for the daily experience of our own Christian faith. And thirdly, because love of others is the most powerful witness to unbelievers. Work with Muslims, evangelism with Muslim people is very difficult. We have some contact with a Muslim man at the moment, regularly. But it's the witness of our love and our sense of forgiveness of others and so on. That's the thing that makes the biggest impact on them to begin with. Well, the fourth and final clue about how to live in the overlap is in verse 11. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as in fact you are doing. So Paul has an encouraging word to say to these Christians at Thessaloniki. They obviously had a good fellowship together there. He's encouraging them. Now verse 11 is about Christian community, Christian fellowship. Living in the overlap is challenging. It's often difficult and hard. And we need the encouragement and the support of fellow believers. And the most important and sustainable way of doing that, of giving and receiving that, is the local church like this. The local expression of the body of Christ. Now I'm sure it hasn't, um, you haven't missed the fact that as you read through the New Testament, almost all of the metaphors that are chosen to describe the church, the local church, are community metaphors, communal metaphors, all metaphors that emphasise the <coughs> interdependence among the members. For example, the family, the household of God, the body, the holy nation, the vine and the branches, and so it goes on. There are no lone ranger Christians in the New Testament. So please value your Christian community. Nurture it, protect it, deepen it, strengthen it. It's never perfect, but it's essential 
to your survival while you live in the overlap. Let's pray. Lord, as we wait for your coming and the renewal of your creation, which we desperately long for, we pray that you will grant us alert and expectant hearts. Help us to fight the complacency that comes with the comfort and the distractions of our prosperity. Help us to live as children of the day, witnesses to your light. We ask this through Jesus Christ our Lord, the light of the world. Amen.